Well, one Victorian vicar commenting on this passage said, the verses we've just read deserve to be printed in letters of gold. I love that. It's hard not to agree, in a way, isn't it, with that sentiment. But um, even that gilding seems too much somehow for those words. Uh, Luke, I think, agrees with that. Normally he's very, very uh, fulsome in his description of events. He gives more than the other gospel writers. He usually describes things. But actually here, everything is stripped back and all the facts, the presentation of crucifixion is bare and stark, almost like Golgotha, the place of the skull itself. Um, And I feel the same certain reservation in preaching on these words. Where do you begin? What do you put in? What do you leave out? There's so much to say, isn't there, about this passage of Scripture. I don't really want to gild it in any way, but to let it stand before you. Um, What helps, though, is that, as I've said already today, we're celebrating and remembering that Jesus Christ is king. King of the universe. I love that phrase. The new king of the universe. It sounds so modern and yet so timeless at the same time. Uh, The Greek word is, I'm hashing the pronunciation, but pantocrata, cosmic ruler. You know, it's, it's so cool, isn't it? We don't often think of it like that. But Jesus is king of the universe. And it's very appropriate, of course, as we come, this is the last Sunday of the church year, and next Sunday begins Advent, and so everything builds up to this celebration of Christ the King. And here in Luke, one of the things, one of the many things that the Holy Spirit is inspiring Luke to do here is create for us a portrait of Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. And I think that's kind of shocking. I guess what I'm saying is this. If you imagine a worldly king, most of you would have seen that portrait of King Henry VIII where he's like wearing his golden stockings. You know what I mean? Where he's sort of standing like something like that. You know, I don't know what he's doing. But anyway, you know what I mean? He's puffing his chest out and he's showing off his tights. And, uh, <laughs> and he's displaying all his glory. And everything about the painting is designed to show you how rich and how powerful and how glorious his reign was and you know how upright he was and all that stuff that obviously wasn't true. But anyway... <laughs> Um, it's a portrait of him. And if he, they had the technology, I'm guessing King Henry VIII would have liked that picture to be hung in every public place or maybe in every home uh, during his reign so people could be reminded about how amazing he is. Well, what Luke is doing for us in this passage is basically he is painting a portrait for us to hang in our homes and to fix in our minds that portrays for us again and again the kingship of Christ. This is Jesus' coronation. His enthronement in a very, very real sense. God wants us to come back again and again to this moment at Golgotha, at Calvary, and be reminded of the glory, the power, and the kingship of Jesus Christ at this moment. At this moment. He would have us think on it in prayer in our daily lives, in everything we do. He wants it to be present in a you know, way far more glorious than poor old Henry VIII. But something in us, I think, pushes back against that idea. Because, as is very evident in this passage, this is a place of shame. There's a lot of bad stuff going on here, isn't there? there is a, a, uh, this is a place where we don't like to think of our King Jesus. We want to think of him in his enthronement in heaven, his ascension, his sitting down at the right hand of the Father, this 
the glory and the, the separateness and the, the holiness of, of Christ in heaven. That's what, I, I want to honour him with that. When I sing the song that we, we sang uh, first this morning, you know, just, I, I want to honour him with that and um, ancient of days and think of him in that heavenly light. Yet actually what's happening here in scripture is God would pull our sights downward, I'm not sure I want to say that actually, across some deeper and see actually again and again he wants us to encounter him here. Part of the reason I don't want to look at Golgotha is because Jesus is my king and here I see him ashamed, or not ashamed, but shamed, and as a victim. And he seems almost powerless, doesn't he? And yet that is the very, that's the very first point that God would say to us this morning. That the cross of Jesus Christ displays most fully and most understandably for us the very power of God that he wants us to know. The cross displays the power of God. So God doesn't want us to shy away from that. He doesn't want us to look away and say, oh, I'd rather think of you in purple robes, and I'd rather think of you like in Revelation 1. No, he wants us to think of him here. There, there's a, there's a, a deep, deep irony, this is very much Luke's way, in this picture that he's painting for us. The, the, the uh, a crucifixion was a place of absolute powerlessness in so many ways. Like socially, crucifixion was reserved for slaves and the worst criminals. If you were a Roman citizen, it didn't matter how bad you were, what kind of criminal activity you undertook, you could not be crucified. It was too shameful for a Roman citizen. You'd be beheaded or something more honourable like that. <laughs> Crucifixion was reserved for the powerless, the statusless, the untouchable. So socially, he's powerless. The, uh, the presentation is, is one of absolute vulnerability. You're, uh, one who's crucified is stripped naked, perhaps in... Uh, Judea at the time, they would have had a loincloth just for uh, local sensibilities, but there was this powerlessness in the presentation. Probably Jesus wasn't hoisted high up on a cross. He was probably at just about eye level, if not just above, in a place where there were loads of passers-by, so where you were hung and unable to move. Everyone else had their freedom and they could walk by and mock exactly as Luke is depicting in this passage. You're, you know, it's, it's a place of imprisonment. And as a, as a means of torture, it is overwhelmingly designed to make you feel uh, powerless because your strength is drained away until um, the, the, the method of crucifixion is such that death usually comes, if not by blood loss, then through suffocation. Because as you're pinned up on the cross, you have to hold yourself upright uh, to maintain your breath. And as you lose strength, you gradually suffocate. Can you imagine a torture, uh, a means of execution that is more designed to demonstrate that you have no power. You're nothing. And yet Jesus is there in every respect, completely and utterly by his own power. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. It says in Acts 2. Matthew, Jesus says, Matthew 26 says, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? 
No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus says in John 10. Every part of this terrible scene is chosen, willingly, submitted to, willingly, by Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. Every mocking word, everything that's depicted here, every mocking word, the placement of the criminals, the place of the skull, the wine on the stick, the sign above his head, it is all according to his will. Everything that's not depicted here, that's elsewhere in the Gospels or in our imagination, every blow upon his body, every strike of the whip, every piercing of a thorn, every drop of blood is chosen by Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. Kingship. What does this picture tell us of kingship? What do the world's king, kings use their power for? To separate themselves. To lift themselves over and above. To shield themselves from the mess and the inconvenience and the complications of life. To be over. And what does Jesus Christ use his power for? With every breath, every fibre of his body, every thought and word, every will, he wills to be in this with us. Isn't that a wonderful truth? He's a victim in the sense that he is the sacrificial lamb. But he's not a victim. He's choosing to be there. All the mighty power of God. The power that keeps the stars up in heaven, the worlds, the, the solar systems and the galaxies. that brings to birth all things and will bring to end all things. All that power is directed towards this one thing. The pouring out of his love for the sake of the world. Not one time, but now. Jesus Christ is ruling now. Isn't that an amazing thing? I think for a lot of my Christian life, I, I thought that was something that happened in the future. But Jesus Christ, Christ reigns now. He's in charge now. And he is exerting all of his power in pouring out his love into the world, into your life. Into bringing salvation and forgiveness and rescue and healing to you. Into solidarity in your troubles, in your sicknesses, in your temptations. For you. His whole will is bent upon demonstrating his love, displayed here most clearly for you. There's not an ounce of reservation. He's pouring it all out for you. And in the midst of that confusing picture, you see, this is the thing, isn't it? What makes the difference is to this crucifixion and all the horror is that in the middle of it is God choosing and redeeming and working and blessing through it. And everything that you is happening in your life, good or bad, beautiful or ugly, Jesus Christ is at work blessing and redeeming and sanctifying and bringing amazing things.
So his power is on display. Well, what goes with power? We prayed it a minute ago. Finally, it's the kingdom and the power and the glory. The glory. <laughs> his glory is on display as well. Do you know what? I was thinking, I'm not, I'm not sure I've entirely separated these two points out, to be honest with you. So you might, be, you might listen to what I'm about to say and go, I think that's about power too. It probably is, but the point is that Jesus Christ's power is glorious. What goes with this power is glory. You know, this, the cross was so scandalous. It's almost, you know, we, we, we absorb the fact of the cross. We, it's just part of our culture. And for us as Christians, of course, we are, dare I say, comfortable with the idea. But, you know, in the early church, it was so scandalous that there were these uh, false teachers that came along, heretics that came along, that basically said that God could not have sent his son to die on a cross. It must, there must have been some switch that took happen, that took place right, right at the last minute. There was a famous guy called Basilides who claimed that Jesus Christ swapped place with Simon of Cyrene. I think someone would have noticed, but, you know, there we go. <laughs> uh, in the Quran, it says, let me get this right. That the idea that Jesus Christ died is a monster on the cross is a monstrous falsehood. Because how would God let his prophet, you know, die that way? It's so scandalous. What less glorious place could there be? This place is probably a rock quarry, and it has the appearance of a the appearance of a skull, hence his name Golgotha, the skull. It's outside the city, beyond the city limits, in a place where um, there'd be passers-by where soldiers are gambling at Jesus' feet. Uh, Jesus is mocked by words, by the words of the crowd, by the, you know, letting him be taken down. If, you know, if he's the Christ, if he's the king, by the sign above him, by the, the criminal next to him. I mean, you know, everyone is taking away from Christ's glory. I mean, in a sense, Golgotha is this this, it's like the ground zero for the ugliness of humanity, isn't it? It is a desolate place. And, and that's even before we take into account spiritually what is happening there. And yet, here in this place is the unfolding of God's glorious plan. Jewish tradition has it that Golgotha is the same place as Mount Moriah. I don't know if that's true, but it's a tradition that that's the case where Abraham took Isaac to be sacrificed. And the same tradition has it that it was the burial place of Adam. I don't know if that's true. We'll find out one day, I guess. But aside from a legend, what we see is very clearly this the picture of the unfolding of God's glorious plan to um, portrayed in scripture we see the fulfillment again and again of prophecy he was counted among the transgressors it says in Isaiah 53 he was pierced for our transgressions the Psalms say that the people are standing around calling out let him save himself it says in the same Psalm they divided their clothes among themselves so all this glory is being taken away this inglorious place but actually it's part of God's glorious plan this, this place of desolation is the turning point of, of human history. This sarcastic sign is gloriously true. <laughs> he is the king, not just of the Jews, but of 
the universe, praise God. Isn't that wonderful? He is the king. But you know, the most glorious thing about it is not just that it's sort of doing God's will despite, you know, what's happening. That's kind of the power thing. That's what I'm saying. It's kind of mixed up. But what is God's glorious plan? What is God's glorious plan? The cross is a place where the sinner, the vilest of sinners, is forgiven and redeemed and no longer called outcast and not even called servant called son. Isn't that amazing? Oh, the world doesn't understand. There's a, there's a famous philosopher, a guy called Nietzsche. And, uh, you know, he found Christianity ugly. Because he just thought, you know, all this bearing with the weak and helping the weak and, gosh, king of the Jews, he hated it. Because he he thought, humanity, we need to be set free from the shackles of looking after the underclass. Set free from rescuing those who've been left behind. So we can pursue what what our hearts desire. You know, that's real atheism, isn't it? How ugly, isn't it? How ugly that is. How awful. And yet in each one of us, there's this desire somehow to break free, to get rid of the the shackles of, of... that people who are dependent upon us or people who need us or the stain of the past or whatever it is, there's this, there's this need to break away. There's this kind of, you know, the rich people escaping the Titanic, you know, oh, get the poor out of the way and get on the boats. You know, that, isn't there that feeling in the world around us? That's ugly and awful and, and yet so instinctively there. And what is God's glorious plan? He says, no, that is not the way to salvation or life or anything else. What is God's glorious plan? It is to rescue the sinner. And to pour out his riches upon the poor. And to lift up the low. All the ends of the earth. All the ends of the earth will see. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. No one is too lost, too ignorant, too sinful, too dirty, too anything. To be beneath the salvation of Christ. He has descended to the lowest place in glorious salvation. The poor, it says in Psalm 22, the same psalm where his clothes are divided. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All the ends of the earth, all who cannot keep themselves, will worship him. His glory is on display. So God wants us to give us this portrait of Jesus and he wants us to keep coming back and saying, here, (laughs) this place, is the power and the glory of Christ. You see that? He also wants to draw us in and give us something to hook a personal response onto a personal response. You know, let's let's say that Golgotha is Adam's grave. I don't know. Like I say, I don't know if that's true. But poetically, there's something about it, isn't there? That here, all the ugliness of humanity is displayed. And I think there's something about this place of desolation that is a picture of every single human heart. I mean that for each person here today. There is a Golgotha 
inside each of us. You know, a long time ago, and I hope this doesn't sound too flippant in the context, uh, when we were living in Sharpthorn, we had a rat in our roof. Oh, it used to give me nightmares. I used to hate it so much. We got a rat killer in after a little while, and he jobbed it in. <laughs> and then when we moved, we had to go up, up into the loft and clear out all the stuff, and we found this thing's nest. And it was all black and greasy, and there were feathers where it had dragged a pigeon inside and eaten it. There was its filth. Yeah, it was just disgusting. It's awful. Kind of like my worst fears of what was happening in my loft all country. <laughs> isn't there something? Golgotha's like that, isn't it? Like each of us has a nest of things. Past and things we think about. And guilt. Confusion. Everything from foibles to outright horrible stuff. In us. And God is speaking down the ages through this passage. He says, I want to come into that place and rescue and redeem and forgive and cleanse. He wants to do that for each person here. He is so, he loves you so much. You know, this Christ's descent from heaven is not just a one-time thing. He comes and meets each one of us where we are. He descends into the midst of our mess, whether it be sin, whether it be confusion, whether it be just a messed up life, all the knots and <laughs> stuff that we tie ourselves up in. He comes in and he wants to rescue us, heal us, cleanse us, redeem us, and bring his life into those situations. And in each one of us, there is the two of these criminals either side of us. One of them looks at this whole scene, looks at the mess in our heart, and there's this idea that God is interested, or that it matters, or that it can be redeemed, or that it applies to me, and it's just full of mockery. What a load of rubbish. I'm, I'm not that guilty, I'm not that messed up, I don't really need that help, or Maybe just nihilism, like it's all just hopeless. We look at it and we, we want to dismiss it. But there is something else inside of us by the work of the Spirit. That as we look upon this thing, whether we are as ignorant as this thief, and think about this guy, the, the thief who says, remember me. Think about what kind of life he's had, what kind of home he grew up in, what kind of family he had that led him to, be, to the day of being crucified on a cross. This is not some noble guy. In his ignorance, theological and in every other way, he looks at Christ and what does he see? Not mess and not confusion. He sees the glory of God. That is what glory is. It's beauty. It's something that transcends our ability to articulate and understand. And so he looks at this whole thing and in the midst, under the sign and under the crown of thorns and the blood and all the, all the stuff, the shame of the cross, he actually sees Jesus Christ as king. And God would paint that picture for each person here this morning and say, do you see what he sees? Whatever questions you have about doctrine, about Christianity, about the church, about anything else, whether you can articulate it or not, do you see the beauty? God wants to give you 
He wants to rescue you, cleanse you, restore you. He wants to take all the mess that's in your life and make sense of it. He wants to take all the mistakes and make them worthwhile and fruitful. And above all, he wants you to be able to love like Jesus does. If you had more power than you have right now, I was going to say, if you were king of the universe, what would you do? That's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? But if you had your heart's desire in terms of power, more money or opportunities or whatever, what would you use it for? Who would you make happy? Jesus is the king of the universe and he uses it, pours out his life for the world. And in that he finds, he displays the very life of God. God wants to enable you not only to be rescued, but to be able to love like that and so find eternal life. Now, if you don't find that beautiful, I can only pray that the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. You know, Jesus has the power to untie any knot, any difficult circumstance. If you guys who know Jesus, who made this decision, this is so important for us to know. This gospel we carry. Jesus Christ is the wisest and most wonderful of kings. No problem you encounter. No difficulty in the life of a family, family member or a friend. It's too complicated. For Jesus. So Luke wants to invite a personal response. If you've never acknowledged the beauty of Christ, you've never cried out, just simply, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, or some version of that, asking Jesus into your life. If you've seen the beauty of what the glory and the power of Christ's kingship, I would urge you just in prayer quietly or with me or someone else you know in this church after the service to say, you know what, I, I want what that thief on the cross took hold of at the very end. And the grace of God will flood into your life. To us who are Christians, Luke's portrayal invites a, a personal response too. I, I think that we can have a tendency as we look at, at Golgotha, as we behold it again and again, to our instinctive response is something like, phew, Jesus Christ took my place. He took my punishment upon himself. That's all true, of course it is. Phew, thank goodness Jesus did that for me because now I don't have to go through all that. But here in this picture, Luke is portraying for us most clearly in the actions of the thief on the cross, his version, if you like, his angle on what it means to be saved. Here is a guy who dies with Christ and so receives eternal life. You recognise that? The pattern? The cross is not just your exit point from the motorway. It's, it's the navigation plan. It's the demonstration of this is what life is. It's a demonstration. It's a portrayal. The power and the glory of God. We're supposed to look at that and say, 
This is how to live, to pour out my life for those around me, to give away all that God has given me that I might receive back for him again and again with interest and ever-growing capacity what I may give away again and again. At the cross, we have portrayed for us not just our rescue, but the wisdom of God. We, I've used this analogy before, but like when there's a, an eclipse and we hand out those, those little cards so you can look in reflection at the sun, or you wear sunglasses, or have those machines in the observatories that enable them to, to take photographs of the sun, and you see that at the, the heart of the sun is this, you can, you can actually behold behind the glory, the workings of what's going on, the star at the centre of our solar system. So the, the cross is like that. We see the workings at the heart of God, that he is love itself, and that behind all the power and the glory in the universe is this act ongoing, never-ending, never-ceasing, eternal act of self-giving. And he invites us in. We have to see at the cross love itself, and we have to love Love. You understand? We have to love love because God is love. We have to look at the cross and we have to say, not only few, but I want that. I want what Jesus had. I want to know the Father's love. And I want to love like Jesus. So where does this hit home for you? What power do you have in your life? It's a real question. I mean, maybe not as a king. I don't think there's anyone here. Stop me if I'm wrong. Haile Selassie came to this church once, so you know. Not as a king. But what power do you have? What privilege do you have? What opportunity? Financial? <coughs> Time-wise? Socially? What power do you have that you can give away in the service of others? Where is the battle in your life right now? In each of us, there is this spiritual, cosmic battle going on between the need to protect and gather and, you know, not have things taken away from us and secure ourselves and what Jesus Christ does at the cross and just give in the confidence that God will be faithful. Where is the battle raging in your life? What power do you have? He's turning us inside out. Isn't he? And we can resist and fight and kick and struggle. Or we can get on board and cooperate. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his glory. Amen. Let's pray.